this isn't just a workplace issue either. I think this happens in friendships yes. and families too. And uh, this is just probably good advice for cross relationships. Yeah, PTA groups. <sighs> not yours. You're, I don't know. I'm not in any PTA. Oh. Did you hear my story earlier <laughs> about not wanting the neighbors to speak to me? <laughs> you think I went and joined some parent teacher association? <laughs> the hell I did. <laughs> Welcome to Attached, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all of that bad relationship advice using science. I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson out of the University of Tennessee. I'm Dr. Sarah Woods at UT Southwestern Medical Center. So as you probably heard uh, today, unfortunately, you are saddled with just the lovely Sarah and myself, but if you're not lovely listeners, Sesson will um, be joining us next episode. In the meantime, like I said, it is just us. So today we are going to just jump right directly in to the deep end with the academic deep dive segment. Um, we're going to discuss an academic article. They raised me to resist examining the sociopolitical pathways between parental racial socialization and black youth racial justice action. What a cool study. I'm excited about this. And then in good or bad advice, we'll be talking about how to be anti-racist in our work environments with an article from Time's Up. As I'm sure you've noticed, and you're looking at your... Uh, phone today is february we're well into the month of february and it's black history month so this episode is particularly celebrating um and recognizing that as always if you have any advice you'd like us to talk about send it to us you can email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com tweet us facebook us instagram us all at attached podcast or just go straight to the source attachedpodcast.com and send us a message as always, for bonus content and to support this little wee pod, uh, please go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash attached and become a patron. Wherever you listen to these voices, this podcast, uh, YouTube, Apple, Spotify, please rate and review and consider subscribing. Smash that subscribe button. So a wonderful episode, uh, albeit minus our lovely Sesson. Um, but before we get to all that... Sarah, what's up? How's it going? Happy February. Thank you. <laughs> Such an exciting month. Um, a short month, right? They um, pack it full. Tip, tip, they do. Yes, we have been in the process of moving. And uh, so that's what I've been up to the last, I was going to say several weeks. It, I think maybe it's been several months now, like preparing for the packing of all the things and then the throwing away of all the things um, and giving away oh. and occasionally trying to sell a Ooh. thing or two. People don't seem to be as interested in that. <laughs> they are very excited about all the stuff that we give away for free, free. in our neighborhood. Oh, They're very excited about it. Like people have started sending me messages that I people I do not know oh. from neighborhood Facebook groups to say to me specifically, wow, you give away a lot of good stuff. <laughs> And I am always like, this feels like a really intimate, weird side conversation <laughs> to be having with somebody that I don't know. Thank you. So, what do you um, say? Is that a thank yeah. you? Is that what you respond to that? I mean, yeah. I'm so glad. Oh, that's nice. Oh, sweet. Um, sometimes they message me 
to say what they've gotten of mine before. They, oh, we grabbed this from your front porch a few years ago. We still use it like every day. And um, so we have some jokes in our family now about how random people in the neighborhood we don't know are like, mm, if you're going to play with that child's accordion, think of Sarah when you do it. Like people are very like intimately connected with whatever you. I have no idea what they're referring to uh, I am very glad that they're very excited did and the, are you saying that you had an accordion in your life at one point oh an accordion oh yes a child's accordion which oh. we gave away okay, uh, okay eventually when my child wasn't looking because she never used it and it's one of many examples I really like your style uh, let me know if you're gonna post anything else soon yeah uh. uh. And then you're sort of like, but they don't want to buy it. (laughs) No, they They just want want to buy it to take it from you. They're thrilled at the free stuff, and they've all been to my front porch, and um, so peer through your windows. Yeah, it's a lot. It's just a lot of energy on my front porch. I'm excited. Like I don't want to add to a landfill. Sure. But I don't need to be this connected to these strangers who are like, oh, my child's going to wear this dress for Easter. Uh, I really love these lamps you gave away last time. This is going to go great with them. I mean, it's a lot. I'm not exaggerating. Um, Wow. It's sort of an interesting scenario where I'm a little worried about like saving the earth might result in my family being murdered i don't know oh see i was thinking saving the earth might result in you getting some more friends in your neighborhood but that's not where you are going no no we're leaving (laughs) (laughs) i gotta get out of there for a lot of reasons this is just the exclamation point on all the reasons the underlined exclamation point all the things they're being so nice it's so kind it's just a lot (laughs) i have enough people in my life this is too much i'm good i'm good stop on a podcast about being socially connected with others i just suggested okay <laughs> let's calibrate no i think it's good to uh, be selective i think it's important um my children this entire winter thus far have been the uh petri dishes of all petri dishes oh. just mm. kids bringing home stuff for me to catch left right and center um, mm. I don't know how many colds I have had. I mean, we're talking last month and a half, right? As winter. Um, I'm going to say about four. I also have had strep and pink eye. So <laughs> not at the same time, thankfully, but not too far apart either. <laughs> um, so we'll see. Um and super low key. I saw some like little dots on my baby's mouth. Oh. So now I'm like, are we doing okay. hand foot mouth now? Is that what we're doing? Oh. <sighs> a tour. Uh, a germ tour. Of all of the childhood illnesses. And you know, that's real bad for adults. So anyway, I'm double washing my hands. Yeah. Uh, anytime I uh, look at that child, nice. just immediately wash my hands and move on. <laughs> um, so anyway. I am recovering currently from an illness and uh, hopefully I won't be coughing too much. But I have this super lovely, sultry voice that I don't typically have. So, you know, there's always a silver lining. (laughs) 
In this episode's Academic Deep Dive, we're talking about new research that explores racial socialization in black families and its impact on the socio-political development of black youth and their engagement in racial justice actions. They raised me to resist examining the socio-political pathways between parental racial socialization and black youth racial justice action and a new article in the Journal of Community and Applied Social Psychology and describes research done by Dr. Nakimka and Yiwo at Columbia University and her colleagues. Their work explores how black families help support the healthy development and survival of their children in a racially oppressive society using a parenting practice known as racial socialization. The authors explain that racial socialization or quote the talk is the use of protective, positive, and affirming messages and behaviors that includes teaching kids about their racial and cultural history and heritage and preparing kids for the bias they'll experience in order to help kids learn how to navigate a racist society. This parenting practice in black families occurs most often in early to mid adolescence and research supports that it protects kids from depression, anxiety, and from the dehumanization they experience. It teaches them what to expect and how to respond appropriately, and it helps kids to develop an affirmed racial identity. The authors of the research we're discussing today have moved beyond understanding the immediate benefits of racial socialization for kids and explore how racial socialization impacts black adolescents' ability to identify inequalities and marginalizing social structures, their motivation to change these, and their actions to change unjust systems, especially important given the role of young people in activism and the benefits of activism for coping with and healing from racism. Wow, such incredible work. I'm so excited to hear more. Sarah, can you walk us through what exactly they found? Yeah, I agree that it's a really powerful setup. And if you are um, a researcher, uh, academic, anybody sort of interested in either families or uh, parenting practices, racial socialization, discrimination, I mean, any number of areas, like if you have access to the um, full paper here, I won't do the introduction justice. It's really so thorough and so intentional. And it is, as you're talking about, Patricia, the study is uh, looking at what we already know in terms of racial socialization being a parenting practice that helps young black people emotionally cope with racism, uh, but it's also looking at, does that also move them to action? Does it support these young people's ability to challenge racism, which is framed as a more active form of coping? Um, and so they're looking at these pathways, these links between that racial socialization and racial justice action. So they looked at this through surveying 500 black young people, 13 to 17, from across the United States. Uh, their parents had participated in prior research and could engage their kids if they were of the right age. And so it's a lot of participants responding about their experiences and beliefs in these areas. What they're really looking at in terms of outcomes is whether these kids are um, acting in such a way that is working to challenge racism, to shift these oppressive systems. And so they're looking at that in three different ways. Um, the first is interpersonal action, which are these young people's actions to 
challenge their friends or family or strangers when they make racist remarks. So calling people out on that and um, uh, sort of boldly challenging people when they say things that are inappropriate. Mm. The second kind of action they looked at is political and communal action. These are protest actions, uh, engagement with political institutions, so calling a senator, uh, for example, collective action in school or community. And then the third type of action they looked at is online action. So these are strategies for online racial justice movements. So using hashtags like Black Lives Matter, sharing art or music that they've created online to help address social issues. Mm. So getting engaged uh, through social media. And they tested whether the practices that their parents used around racial socialization was linked to these types of action through um, the individual uh, kids' perceptions of inequality, which they're calling critical reflection, and or critical agency, which is their belief that they can make change in their community and their motivations or feeling like they have agency to be able to uh, push back against racism. Um, And so they did this uh, looking at both racial barriers socialization and cultural socialization Mm. which i'll talk a little bit about just because i think there are two distinct kinds of racial socialization parenting practices and they found uh different um links for each Mm. and so uh what they found when they looked at racial barriers socialization so this is parents who are using messages that help alert um Uh, their black children about racism and inequality that they might encounter. Uh, So really um, talking with them about what they might face on the job market, what the um, barriers are to being able to succeed that are stemming from these uh, racist policies and structural inequities. Um, And what they found was that the more that parents use this type of socialization, it was linked to their kids' perceptions of inequality, that critical reflection piece, mm. and also their belief that they could make change, and that political communal action piece. But what they also found was that critical reflection, that awareness, was in turn associated with being more likely to pursue interpersonal action political communal action and online action. Um, So it was um, uh, an interesting process where that awareness piece was really uh, a link between that type of parenting and those outcomes, those behavioral outcomes. Mm -hmm. The second kind of parenting that they looked at strategy here is the cultural socialization. So this is black parents exposing their kids to black culture plays, movies, celebrating cultural holidays, reading books. Um, And what they found is that this was, again, linked to that critical reflection piece, their awareness, their perceptions of inequality. And that was, again, in turn, linked to kids' agency, but it was also linked to each form of action. So um, although this is a cross-sectional study, um, and I think the authors themselves explained that they didn't look at whether social location uh, how that influenced um, participants' responses. What do you mean by social? Oh, yeah. Sorry. I was going to say, what do you mean Meaning, by social location? Yeah, so they didn't look at whether these pathways differed by like socioeconomic status oh, and sort of societal position of these families, which could certainly uh, shift your exposure to either opportunities to pursue this kind of activism or sort of what you're exposed to in day-to-day yeah. life. Um, but those are... Uh, Um, sort of um, 
next steps, I imagine, of what these authors are planning. And um, I think what they're really sort of hoping that you can take away from this research, which I think is really powerful, is they're finding that um, essentially black adolescents who receive more messages preparing them for discrimination and who experienced more of their parents' Um, behaviors to promote that cultural enrichment had a higher awareness of racial inequality and they were more motivated and also more confident Mm. to address racism which also meant that translated into action they weren't just more motivated to challenge it they also engaged in more action and that was especially true when they looked at that cultural socialization piece so part of how they explain uh, this could be happening is essentially um, these families are cultivating an understanding of how unique um, black cultural expressions are uh, and the legacy of black sociopolitical resistance really helping sort of um, acculturate their kids to that special piece of what they have access to and what's come before them, this legacy that they have access to. And also, it's possible those parents are also more likely to model political activism. And oh. so it's possible it's why they found direct links to all three forms of racial justice action. Um, and uh, it really is sort of interesting to see this dyadic, this parenting process um, in terms of what they're hoping to teach their kids and prepare their kids for not only being linked to how their kids think and recognize and be aware of um, but they also it looks like have the capacity to also um, act more so they're not just uh, identifying and analyzing they're also um, challenging and pushing and creating change which is a really powerful way to not only cope with racism but also to help push these structures in directions that they need to go and shift this big picture culture but um, the authors themselves uh, use a phrase that the talk translates into the walk Ooh. which is um, such a, I know nice. it's such a great way to talk about that um, and really just beautiful research um, uh, to look at how this occurs across families what this looks like what this turns into for these kids yeah I absolutely love that they also didn't isolate one form of action right they looked at the interpersonal mm-hmm. all of these different like multi-level um, ways mm-hmm. people can engage um, in activism as mm-hmm. well and these are adolescents like that's so also yeah. fantastic that these yeah. teens are um, engaging in all of this work um, that their parents kind of set them up and help them to do I would be so um, curious about from the like the parents perspective too like how their perception of quote the talk um was and how they view their child's activism and maybe they're doing these things together too which would be really awesome and cool Mm -hmm. but like build on that dyadic piece that you were um talking about as well um would be so cool to see as well yeah i think some or maybe all of these authors i'm not familiar with all of these authors other work but i am familiar with some of them um and that is absolutely what they do in lots of their other research they look at this at the family level at how this plays out for parents and then across kids and in communities and it's a really very beautiful thread of research well it looks like i have some reading to do Woohoo! boo Woohoo! yeah finally time for good or bad advice where we talk about pervasive relationship advice in our culture we hear about relationship advice from our parents families and friends we see advice about how to be in relationships from movies and tv shows and we read endless advice spewed at us on all the social media blogs and uh, numerous top 10 lists but a lot of it 
just actually isn't good for our relationships. This is the part of the show where we use science, mind you, to decide if the advice is good or bad. If you have seen or heard any advice you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. Email us, attachpodcast at gmail.com, or get at us in all of those social medias at attachpodcast. I almost forgot our link. I'm just kidding. My brain is foggy. Um, or also please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app or YouTube and share it with your loved ones. As always, there's a bonus good or bad advice segment for our lovely Patreon subscribers. So please consider becoming a patron. So today, um, we're going to talk about how to be intentionally anti-racist in our work environments as white women, me and you, uh, Sarah, who are also in leadership roles. Uh, we think it's our responsibility to do the internal and external work necessary to take purposeful actions towards making our work environments and our lives, of course, but we're focusing on work environments, anti-racist. I also know that many of our listeners are white women in leadership positions and perhaps want to help dismantle racism, but don't maybe know exactly how to. So today I wanted to highlight some points made by a Time's Up article titled Building an Anti-Racist Workshop. Um, the article is very, very lengthy and has it packed full of great information. So we're not going to be able to cover it all here, um, but um, we will link to it. So please read it in its entirety. So we're just going to um, talk through some of the points that are made here. Um, and again, please go and read the full article. It is fantastic. The first kind of bit they talk about is don't be silent. Um, so one, don't let fear of saying the wrong thing keep you silent. If you say something harmful or hurtful, obviously on accident, even unintentionally, immediately issue a genuine apology and reiterate your comments to combat racial or gender discrimination. So don't let the fear of saying the wrong thing keep you silent. What are your thoughts on that, Sarah? I like the second piece about the genuine apology. Yeah. I think that's really critical. I also think in general, people are not great at apologizing. I think in uh, conversations that um, are tied to equity inclusion in the workplace and thinking about how uh, we can be as respectful as possible. I think apologizing genuinely is really important mm -hmm. um, because we can often sort of make that emotional labor that our colleagues have to do to help us feel better right. about when we make a mistake. And that's not a genuine apology. Right. That is permission to um, have made the mistake and then uh, asking for um, someone to make you feel better. Um, I would say um, the don't let the fear of saying the wrong thing keep you silent. Is that? Yeah. Um, the, I think it's okay if you go slow. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, um, I, I agree. There's a little bit of hesitancy in this one for me too. And I certainly do have a lot of fear of saying the wrong thing. I have that. But I also think think that if you perpetually have this anxiety and fear of saying the wrong thing, but you want to say something, then you do the work, go to Google, do the research of like, what are things to say? What are the right things to say? And do the work and do the research, put in that work. So that way, when it comes time to say something, you can make sure you're saying something that is, when you think of the pendulum of right and wrong, is swinging more towards right than wrong. Uh, that would be the, how I would kind of tweak that recommendation a little bit. Put a little mm -hmm. bit of work in, do some research mm -hmm. to figure it out. Mm -hmm. 
don't just signal support, root out racism at your work spot space. And so there are a couple of items under that one. Assess the demographic makeup of your entire staff at all levels and up and down the wage scale, looking at factors such as gender, race, ethnicity, disability, LGBTQIA plus status and more to be able to accurately analyze inequities while being mindful of people's agency and deciding which identities they feel comfortable disclosing. What are your thoughts on that as a, like a leader in a leadership role? Sure. I think that is probably a bare minimum strategy. Uh, really sort of critical information to have. And then also I think a lot of organizations can possess that information and then do nothing with it. Right. So it is a start. Uh, and then also I would say um, it has to be paired with uh, plans for action once you've identified inequities. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good uh, a point is so often we ask the question, what are your identities? And then don't ever um, do anything about it. Um, and I think also being very mindful of, you know, so often I've listened to a lot and read um, a lot on this, but, you know, hiring one person of color in an entire room of white people just isn't it's like almost tokenizing the person. So when you're thinking of diversifying um, the people that you work with, um, make sure that the people that you hire don't feel isolated, don't feel alone. They have support around them um, and you're not tokenizing people as well. So being mindful on multiple levels in addition to how quote your workforce looks also how is your workforce feeling and thinking emotionally and physically because um you want them to feel safe as well so the next one is under hold conversations to bring awareness to racism at work and create genuine safe spaces where people can share their experiences openly um, one of them is lead with empathy. Um, this is likely exhausting and emotional trying time um, for your black staff. Ensure that they understand pay time off is an available option and that work can be reallocated in the interim. Respect the responses you receive and make the offer again at a later time without an expiration date. This is not a time to add additional responsibilities or offload emotional labor onto your black staff, particularly black women who may be experiencing additional caregiving responsibilities at home. Encourage managers to ask their black team members how they want to be supported and to honor whatever they may need, especially if you don't fully relate to their healing process. Lead with empathy. What are your thoughts, Sarah? Yeah, I mean, that sounds more action-oriented in terms of checking in with somebody about what they might need and then committing to honoring what they say they need, uh, which feels important. Um, otherwise, I think you're opening up that question for people who may or may not feel safe to answer yeah. that. And then not doing anything with the information once you have it. Um, and ideally what feedback we might get is about shifts we need to make within the organization as well, within sort of teams or um, relationships at work. And that also should be honored. Yeah. Um, so I think the commitment to action is an important piece of what you're saying in terms of leading with empathy. 
I agree. And uh, I'm thinking about like me and my own staff, which is a really, really small group of people, undergraduates and students. And um, my hands are tied for like the amount of things that I can change. So I think leading with empathy and that open ear and also being aware of resources in the larger system that maybe you can point them to or the larger system for me as a university that you can point them to and, you know, offer to say, I can help with this um, uh, if needed, but just knowing how little I can actually do if it's beyond my little tiny research lab, but knowing the resources that do exist, I think would be important as well. Mm. Um, hold several safe spaces uh, for your black employees and employees of color to gather and respect their boundaries and well-being. This includes creating funding and prioritizing employing resource groups for black, Latinx, Asian, indigenous, and other communities and making time and space either virtually or in real life uh, for these groups to gather, support one another and raise issues such as toxic workplace culture, fear of retaliation and other barriers that prevent clear pathways to career growth and promotion. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I especially appreciate that I heard you say funding. Yeah. Uh, I think we are in the last few years doing um, sort of a really uh, mixed job sort of across the full scope of what different organizations and workplaces can be doing in terms of trying to create these spaces and making them actually what anyone needs to feel safe right. or process or connect. And then also um, inviting uh, people to do this work and help lead DEI initiatives that um, uh, might identify right. as Black or African American or uh, Hispanic or from any other sort of um, marginalized community, and then not giving them the support they need to do these kinds of activities and run these groups and have the time they need to be successful. And that is intentionally a recipe for uh, failure and a really um, problematic use of their time. It's certainly right. not creating those spaces for safety that you're talking about. So um, I think this is a good idea. I also think that list that I felt like I heard you say at the start is really, really key. Creating, funding, and prioritizing. Yeah, right. So prioritizing right. also means to give people the time off. And right. I think in the intro to this one, it says allow them to gather and respect their boundaries and well-being. Um, I think that is also key. And, you know, this is not for myself a group that I should be running. Right. Well, you know, white women should not be running black or Latinx uh, or Asian or indigenous uh, support groups. Um, so supporting people who want to build those and providing that space. I'm also trying to think of like what this might look like on like a much smaller scale as well. Like I said, the people I work with, I mean, it maxes out at like 10. Um, usually people, maybe one day it'll grow, but not anytime soon. Um, so I'm just curious from your point of view, what something like this might look like on a much smaller scale, or if there is a version of this on a smaller scale. Well, I think, I mean, uh, what you described earlier is that your team is sort of younger and a lot of them in a learner position. Mm -hmm. I think what you mentioned earlier about um, taking responsibility for knowing resources in the larger system is probably a really important way to potentially respond to this need is that there may not in your small group be sort of sufficient representation or sort of um, uh, 
a, maybe a particular need or drive for them to sort of gather and sort of um, uh, create space to process what their identity means and what they're coming up against because of it. Uh, however, there is very likely sort of either in the larger community or in your sort of larger workplace community, um, either resources to be doing some of this work that we can take responsibility for knowing and understanding. Yeah. And or sort of specifically and intentionally having conversations with mentees, supervisees, more junior sort of personnel about um, what they might need in the way of mentorship or supervision um, uh, tied to either their identities or their communities that maybe they sort of haven't had access to in these workspaces. Um, but I think we take responsibility for knowing what right. those are and building relationships with those groups and teams to help connect, especially junior people too, if they are wanting to be connected. Right. Yeah, I think definitely there could easily be a tendency to like force this stuff upon people, um, especially as um, white women. Sometimes we like to be in charge and pretend like uh we know the cure for everything. Um, so I think sometimes it is important to wait and listen and observe. And if asked or see something, say, might this help? Um, but not insisting or inserting ourselves in places where uh, maybe we shouldn't be. Um, which kind of leads to the next um uh, bit is lead the way on anti-racist efforts while learning from your BIPOC colleagues. So I think this is a really, really important one, talking about listening and learning. Um, one is give voice to BIPOC leaders, colleagues, or employees, but do not lean on them to address these issues. You must own this work. Involve black staff and other staff of color in these efforts, but do not expect them to do the work. Too often black staff and staff of color are called upon to help organizations navigate issues regarding race, only to end up shouldering burdens mm -hmm. that are not theirs to carry. It is not right or fair to rely on your staff of color to tackle these issues you must take the lead on so mm -hmm. it is not the responsibility of um, our uh, subordinates of color our mentees of color to um, make us feel better about racist past to make us um, less racist that's our job what are your thoughts well uh, I think tied to what you said earlier about if there's going to be energy and efforts uh, in your organization to promote anti-racist culture, uh, this work cannot be done by th the people who experience right. racism solely. And certainly they can't do that without the resources. Not only can we not require it, uh, we also can't ask or involve them, invite them uh consult with them about what might be most helpful, et cetera, if we don't have the intention to support it with um, time and resources needed to do this work and improve the organization's culture. And I do, I'm not sure if this is um, part of also what I heard you say, Patricia, but um, uh, also sort of I can work behind the scenes mm -hmm. to make sure that that is something that is prioritized over and over and over so that that's not work that they also have to do is ask for what they need um, or rather I can decrease the likelihood that they have to do that and are met with resistance I can work behind the scenes yeah. to 
yeah. uh, point to that being something we need to do. I think that that is a really important point. Our anti-racism work, we don't have to do it out loud in front of an audience all the time. I yeah. think a lot of it needs to be done quietly behind the scenes. Um, and also, um, we should not expect to be applauded and jump up and down every time we do the right thing. So uh, having the capacity to do some uh, self-soothing, if that is what you feel you should uh, be experiencing, um, is applaud or a thank you. Um, but by doing the anti-racism work, um, that's some internal work that we probably need to do for our own self. Um Again, my goodness, this article is just so phenomenal. I encourage you to read it. But for now, I'm going to do the last one. Um, if you are only asking your staff of color to weigh in on issues of race, that is an issue. Give staffs of color the option to contribute to your anti-racism work for the expertise of their lived experience and cultural sensitivity. But do not make assumptions about their time emotional capacity or interest in contributing. This kind of is echoing a little bit what you said. Give them credit, ask for their input, and run decisions by them, but be careful not to tokenize them. This can often happen when a trauma occurs that impacts member of a particular mm. community, such as black staff being asked to discuss police violence, Asians being asked to speak on Asian hate, or indigenous staff being asked to talk about colonialization mm. efforts. Yeah, no, that's just good advice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure I have anything to add to that, but it's just re-traumatizing mm -hmm. and ostracizing, and it's just a different form of how uh, racism shows up um, in relationships. This isn't just a workplace issue either. I think this happens in friendships yes. and families too, and uh, this is just probably good advice for cross-relationships. Yeah, PTA groups. <sighs> not yours. <laughs> You're I don't know. I'm not in any PCA. Oh. Did you hear my story earlier about not wanting the neighbors to speak to me? You think I went and joined some parent-teacher association? The hell I did. I have other kinds like, of Like, I'm emphasizing the silent in the background. I'm That's doing right. all the work That's behind right. the scenes. Don't put my name on any roster. You never heard from me. I'm just behind the scenes pushing and nudging. Oh, PTA, that was cute. Uh, your face did say that that was something you've observed, and I want to respect all of that, but I can tell you that's not where I'm spending my time. <laughs> we all have different experiences, uh, which are probably based on our personalities. So, uh, <clears throat> thanks for listening to Attached. Remember, call us, email us, or get at us on the social medias about any relationship advice you've received that you're wondering whether to follow or pass on. Cannot wait to talk about it.